Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game, and we're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Keeper Mark, and with me tonight are Jen. Hey, guys. And Keeper Bob. Hey, everybody. Tonight, Creep Shadow by Abraham Merritt, also known as Creep Shadow Creep. Jen, why don't you take us into tonight's title work? Had the last king and princess of Wicked Is returned after 3,000 years? Why were they creating an exact replica of Stonehenge on their New Jersey estate? What was the male beneath, the breaker of chests? And what was the dread gatherer in the cairn? And can men and women really be turned into shadows and made the helpless slaves of the one who transformed them? Ethnologist Dr. Alan Karanak who may just be the reincarnation of the Elaine de Karnak, who brought about the destruction of sinful Is and its evil rulers, has to find out the answer, for one of his best friends has been killed and perhaps transformed into a shadow, while his fiancée Helen, her brother Bill, and the famed Dr. Lowell have already been marked for death or worse. But first, Alan will have to enter the tower of the Demoiselle Dahut de Is, in New York, and journey through it thousands of years into the past to her tower in the legendary city from which she draws her name, and then return if he can. Dun, dun, nice. Dun. Yeah. Oh my god, this was such a fun book. <laughs> of course, I started reading it, and right at the beginning, they're referring to a prior case, so I sat down and I read Burn Witch Burn first. Uh, <laughs> extra credit for you. I, I did the Jen thing where I did extra credit, and uh, I, I'll probably do that later. Actually, <laughs> I recommend it. Burn Witch Burn is a really good story, and won't be covered by the Appendix and Book Club in New York until November. So you got time. <laughs> <laughs> the character carryovers and the villains of this piece are mentioned not by name in Burn Witch Burn. And for anyone that wants to read this, I mean, this entered the public domain in 2013. You can find it on Project Gutenberg Australia. So, you know, if you just want to read it on your computer screen, you can, but there's some really nice editions out there. Or you can wait and uh, find Joseph Goodman's Goodman Game Booth, <laughs> where he has his appendix and bookshop, and uh, get a really nice old copy of it. Yeah, it's Murder Mystery Monthly, number 11. Yeah, and I, this was Merritt's last novel. This was it. I really found that interesting, yeah, that you found that factor out because he'd been writing since the 1910s, you know, since some of his earliest works, maybe even before then. 
Well, and he, he wrote afterwards, but not novels. He wrote a lot of short stories and things of that nature. Uh, and if I remember correctly, I mean, right. his primary profession was as a journalist. It was not necessarily a novelist that he got his, right. you know, most of his professional career. And he did this as kind of a very in-depth hobby or side project in work. Yeah, I, I think he was a, a journalist. And it's kind of funny, this being a 1930s piece, it really has kind of that Call of Cthulhu adventure pacing and tone. It has kind of that post-Lovecraft pulp feel, but heavier on the in- investigator and a little bit lighter on the horror. I thought I thought it worked really well. Maybe we need pulp DCC. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you pitch that one. <laughs> it was it, it was a PMC, really cool. pulp magazine classics. Well, yeah, Joseph Goodman and team are actually doing a series of stories and some republishing or new publishing adventures in Tales from the Magician's Skull, which is their their new semi annual, I think, depending on how well it goes with the Kickstarter. Yeah, they announced it at, at Gen Con. They're going to kickstart the first two issues and see how it goes from there. Right. And yeah, I, I think anything with the name annual in it is a little <laughs> bit at this point. So. But it, but it's, I it's, really it's, think the DCC annual is the Gen Con program guide. It comes out annually. There. It does. No problem yeah. solved. But that, that seems like the perfect sort of forum for this type of work. It's very light reading, very pulpy, but it's got so much really rich material in it for people running games and just for people who are interested in, in sort of the look crafty and horror. Very appropriate for the time of year that we're recording this and putting this episode out. Well, and I thought it was really interesting when you read a lot of pieces uh, from this period, the 20s and 30s, the language can go from the verbose and interesting to ponderous where everything is just reaching for a thesaurus or the language is so stilted and archaic and merit stuff is very approachable probably because he's a journalist and well newspapers are now written at a third grade level but yeah they were written (laughs) at a higher level back then but still it's approachable because he knows that he has readers that on a daily basis that have to be able to to get through his stuff. Yes, there's still some real interesting turns of phrase, but this isn't going to give you a headache. And having read only a couple of his other earlier works, with both of those were maybe 20 years before this one was published. He's got an evolution of style because I, I think both the Moonpool and Dwellers in the Mirage really fell into that sort of heavy classical illusions and you know, a lot of references. It's it's kind of lightly scattered through this work, but I think it's it's either a maturity that he's showing or just more confidence in the storytelling that lets him focus on the narrative rather than, you know, trying to draw so many other inferences of sources and, and rely on some of his, I mean, there's obviously a lot of sort of heavy psychology and heavy thought that goes oh, into yes. this. Um, and so I, I think it's pulpy, but it's a well-crafted pulp Clearly, he's doing this at kind of the top of his form, having both the journalistic background and and all the other novels that he's written. Yeah, this really has the feel of like People of the Pit, which uh, which we covered when David was co-hosting with us. And it, it yeah, it was last feel. November, in fact. Oh, look at that! Oh, maybe we'll just do merit annually. <laughs> he's got enough stuff. Yeah, I gotta say though, this was a better read for me than People of the Pit was. Mm, okay, maybe because it's the last novel that he wrote, but. Was People of the Pit 
technically a short story, though? Yeah, People of the Pit was a short story. The pacing was much better in this. Now, this, of course, while it's considered his last novel, this was originally serialized. Hence, the the chapter lengths are all pretty consistent. I don't know if anybody else picked up on that. Uh. And that's why, because it was serialized for a while. But I think that helped the pacing, it being serialized, and it it gave him a structure to work with. And uh, I think it worked out quite well. I will say I only put this book down twice in the read and kicked it out in one day. I was actually kind of happy about that because the book itself is 74 years old and <laughs> I was losing some pages. <laughs> oh, that's right. You have one of the, the Joseph Goodman editions. Yes. It was really interesting from an editor's standpoint and perhaps because it was serialized. There are things in there like triple M dashes. I've not seen in print for, well, probably 75 years, right? <laughs> but especially after having ingested all of the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle material in the past five years or so, I found this to have kind of a similar feel to Hound of the Baskervilles, mm-hmm. but more fleshed out and... Since it is a murder mystery, I would say Sherlock Holmes, but with a little bit more emotional investment. Sort of like Sherlock Holmes meets Jung's collective unconscious. <laughs> Quite possibly. I mean, the story deals with the, with the whole collective unconscious concept of ancestral or uh, genetic race memory. And I, I, that really is kind of key running through the story. If that's not there, then nothing works. And it provides so many opportunities. As a judge reading this, I was like, you know, I don't see a lot of influence in like AD&D from this piece as an Appendix N piece other than, oh, there's Undead Called Shadows. But boy, as a judge, this is an influential piece for me. This has a lot of ideas that are fantastic to take to the table. Yeah, it's, it's it really echoes in sort of reverse a lot of the other appendix and works that deal with a person who's transported to a mythical place, maybe not necessarily their own volition, but they are, you know, sort of physically there or they are, they are in the present. This is sort of the, well, you have, you're calling upon these racial memories to gain that knowledge or to gain that experience, which is a kind of a nice twist to it. And, you know, very apropos to the time that he's writing in, you know, obviously, sort of psychological field growing in sort of public eye through Freud and through Jung. But he plays with this theme throughout his work, both in this novels and in others that I've read. And I think it kind of reaches its uh, peak, you know, in this this one, because it tells a really good story, you know, and, it, and it's, um, like Jen said, it's one of those that it's hard to put down or maybe not difficult to pick up and read in a single day because even though it is novel length, it's longer than Burn, which Burn, the prior book that came before it. It's very compelling and, and I didn't want to put it down either when I was reading it. So, And honestly, Burn, which Burn is also a great read. It's different. Stylistically, it's a bit different. You know, different main character, although the main character there is is in, in a Kipchak creep. Yeah. Right. But both are brilliant mysteries with an occult twist that are really fun. It's good stuff. Yeah. Well, and the, the main character being the ethnologist, I'm like, okay, yep, we're here, we're doing this. <laughs> Let's chew this thing up. Oh, it's very, very Call of Cthulhu, like Bob was saying. Reminds me so much of a 
you know, an adventure you might be running or playing in is in, in the modern RPG sense, but just cast so many years ago, so many decades ago, that it's just, it's like this finding this relic, you know, of somebody else's patterns of thoughts uh, that echo the present, you know, in that sense, you know, of, of what we experience, what we play. So it's kind of fun to think about that for me as well. Well, and the premise of it itself, his friend Dick Ralston, the one that's murdered, that he's trying to get to the bottom of, is the fourth suicide in three months. And I gotta say, I, I think they probably could have done a little bit more with that if they wanted to flesh it out. But seeing as it was a, a serial and reduced to X number of spaces, it turned out really good. Yeah, the, what one of the things that I, I really enjoyed throughout the, the novel as all these callbacks to the current time or the time that it's being written in, you get things like clubs being the center of the social life for these young rich bachelors. You know, they, there's a lot of talks of going to the club and freshening up or bringing, having dinner brought there. You know, the idea that drinking advice is pervasive and most of the advice that's given out by these semi-medical professionals, take a stiff drink with you when you go and do this tonight. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, those are the kind of things that I, I love seeing. Uh, the, you know, the, the fact that not having your hat in the coat was somewhat uh, wicked or somewhat shocking. shocking yeah. you know, to Scandalous. <laughs> But at the same time, he's writing a very, what I would assume is at the time, a fairly scandalous, pulpy novel. A lot of sex, a lot of death, a lot of violence. It has this kind of contrast with the morals of the the time period, but also, you know, the titillation of the time period. Um, so I, I love seeing all of that. It makes it more enjoyable to pick out those little elements of the of the book. And the other thing that that kind of was uh, I thought was really funny was the the whole premise of the the press being so drawn into the story and it, it seemed to call to his journalistic background where, you know, they, they, he's, they're using the press as a kind of a, a trapment, uh, an entrapment for the murderers or the supposed murderers of Dick. Oh, as they're giving their interviews and, and yeah. yeah. I thought that was a, a nice little echo of his own profession, I thought. so. And even this, this main character, the fact that Dr. Karanak is the ethnologist, fresh off the boat from Africa, coming in to find his friend's dead, or his friend dead, rather. I love the statement that, no, I'm not going to the funeral. They're senseless unless there's something unfamiliar about the right. Otherwise, you're just going and looking at this friend and there's nothing interesting about it, and you actually lose the previous memories of your friends. And Besides the ethnological uh, standpoint of that, I love that back in that time, that was a view put forth. Yeah. And that, that seems a little out of the norm for like what I know of my own family back then. Oh, no, you always go. You, you always go to the funeral. You always pay your respects. And you follow that cut and clear right. Well, a lot of this book extrapolates on the theories and rituals and other beliefs of other cultures. And that is probably the the primary thing that sucked me in. 
So that brings us to our next section of the podcast, which is things to stat. Bob, what kind of ideas did you have when you're reading this novel? Right off the bat, there were several curses, like the mirror magic, where they would trap someone's image in the mirror, or the soul string, where they would, I love that, <laughs> where they would kind of measure them and tie it and put it in a cornerstone for a building, and the person would die. Because DCC has curses, but I don't think they have enough of them. There's only like maybe four in the core book. That's fair. And yeah. there, there needs to be many, many, many more. <laughs> Because I did the homework, uh, the extra credit of reading Burn Witch Burn, and because the dolls are mentioned and the doll maker, I'd love to do uh, the living dolls that are mentioned here and fully fleshed out in the prior book. The shadow hounds, the ones that are described as like the elk hounds of the druids, but made of shadow. Those are really creepy. Were those the ones that if they bit you, you just felt that numbing cold? Well, and they're the ones that, uh, towards the end, were tearing through the army of shadows. They're just really creepy. The black mall that was being used in the in the right was kind of neat and perhaps a magical item. Maybe a ritual spell. Again, DCC talks about ritual magic, but there's not really much specific in the way of ritual magic. And maybe some sort of ritual spell that requires the raising of, of menhirs, of standing stones. Shadow magic. Astral travel. This book touches on astral travel without calling it that, as he becomes the living shadow and he is bound by the silver cord. That was really neat. And then uh, Dahut the White as a patron, because oh. you get a you get kind of a glimpse of her without the shadows what else she she could be or maybe what she once was with her powers with the ocean as opposed to the shadows and it'd be neat to kind of maybe have her as a fallen patron or as a fallen god who has gone from this this powerful oceanic force to something else and then can be reawakened those were my thoughts and again though i just i loved the story i loved the end there was so much happening there what about you, Jen? I'm going to build upon your idea of Dahoot as a patron or even a deity, but the spells granted will depend on the name she is known by based on the era and the locale, mm -hmm. because they were going through that she was known as Kor, the daughter, or Persephone, or Hecate, or the Shadows Queen, or Hades' wife, the Queen of the Shades. And so all of these different mythologies kind of tying in, but still referring to the same individual. And for that matter, you could stat up any number of the deities mentioned in de Caradel's theories. Not all of them were of obvious origin. You know, one of my favorites being Kalkru, the Kraken god of... Oh god, I can't pronounce this. <laughs> <laughs> Weirders. Well, that's, sure. that's actually a callback but, to Dwellers in the Mirage, because that's the main god ah, of that book. So I think it's his own sort of semi-invention, maybe maybe based on some mythology that's, you know, abstract or obscure. But that was that's actually drawn specifically from that novel. And it's kind of a neat that he's interlacing these different characters in different time frames. Okay, I need to read more. <laughs> yeah, I I was going to say, I was really appreciative of the fact that it wasn't just Cthulhu. And, you know, along those lines, the elementals, that wave that she wrote out, come on. Uh, there were a couple of spells I was thinking of, like the transmigration of souls. 
the act of sharing that ancestral memory by touch, mm-hmm. the heart's desire, which was a ritual that he went over that he had seen in a brothel where someone would walk in and he wanted the heart's desire, which of course is the most expensive offering on the menu. And at that point they get 12 of the girls and they just start dancing around and blurring around to the drum beats until what is in front of him becomes kind of a mixture of all of these. And the other spell I was thinking about was sending out the soul which is one that the doctor mentions he had heard of from a witch doctor in Zululand. Mm -hmm. And that's what he likened the astral projection to. Mm, But I also think you could stat this entire book up as an adventure with each of those four suicides comprising a play session. You have the recurring villain, and then after the fourth... Maybe there's a fifth session where everything culminates and there's your big bad. So that that's me, but um, you know, I'm I'm all over the place with these. What about you, Mark? This it kind of an intriguing idea is how you'd run this as an adventure because it almost has the blades against death sort of feel where, you know, the characters right. are who who are succumbed to this are turned into shadows and it's a uh, a goal of the party to recover them or to kill the witch is the only way to end the shadows, I think is, you know, one of the, the claims that Alan makes during the, the novel. Um, and so that could become a basis of that, that type of adventure. It'd be kind of cool. That, that would pretty solidly do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that was easy. <laughs> Things that I thought of, I mean, Bob and, and Jen, you guys covered a lot of this. It, you know, the, I think that similarly to how curses are not really expanded on very much in the GCC book, neither are witches. You know, witches are are something that I think get a brief treatment in the NPC or the creature section. The men and the men, men and magicians. magicians that's right. And I think you could really take a witch creature and do something. Um, to expand upon it, uh, especially with all the different types of magic that are mentioned, you know, the reflections, the soul string, the tying of a witch's hair around a, a shadow wrist, you know, which I thought was a really neat or clever idea of a witch trying to capture somebody. They're playing with their arm as it casts a shadow. And, and it's only that, you know, the fact that he notices it, that he jerks his arm away and is, and, you know, presumably freed from the, the spell that she was casting. There's a lot that you could do with hypnotism. You know, even though this is sort of treated as a, oh. or most of the book as a, you know, is it real or is it not? Is it mass hypnosis? Is it a clever, you know, series of cultural references? You know, other things that are, they're sort of compounding this. And I think hypnotism is another type of spell-like effect that you could do. Maybe not necessarily practiced by uh, wizards. Maybe it's something, you know, that you expand to, you know, sort of an, either an NPC or even to other character classes. Or as a career skill. Exactly, yeah. That you have you have some sort of background and maybe, maybe that becomes a lighter sort of play in a DCC world. I am totally thinking of Dark Trails on that one. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, because it's it's very, it's it's a more modern type thing i love the shadow magic the filament that connects the shadow to the victim and that being a you know a real thing to whatever that shadow creature is but it draws them with a hunger and a thirst that the witch is commanding so i think that would be a a nice implementation of that spell there's some character classes that that were sort of called out i think jen you mentioned the heart's desire there was a i think the sanusi or what he called those masters of illusion that were creating that effect 
And I thought, you know, the, uh-huh. those kind of... I did not pick up yeah, on they, that. They're like masters of illusion that they're employed by this brothel for the highest paying customers. And so the the idea of this kind of illusion class, you know, or this this illusion ability is kind of fun. But I, I like that name, the Sanusi. Maybe they're wizards with a spell focus. Yeah. With a couple new spells. Ritualized yeah. magic, yeah. Well, but I mean, spell focus is something that you can take it, I believe it, was it first level or second level? I think it's first. I think it's second level where it's where Arcane Affinity, big... is that what it's called? Arcane Affinity, yeah. that's right. what I'm thinking. It's yes, second level yes. spell that doesn't really get a lot of play at the table, in, at least in, in the ones that I've experienced. Certainly not in the campaign style. And it really should, because it's got one of my favorite art pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it can make you very yeah. dangerous. I, I love the yes. term that they used for the gangsters. Um, I think that they were used in the book called the Modern Day Myrmidons, which I just thought was a, yeah. a fun thing. You could you could do a lot with kind of a, a Myrmidon type class, which is maybe a little bit different than a warrior or berserker, but it, it's kind of got this classical element to it. Uh, and it translates, you know, to the modern, like he was saying, they're, they're the... The mobsters with the guns that you send in in every Call of Cthulhu adventure, you know. To- <laughs> They're the stout fellas. Yeah, exactly. Um, I love on the magic items kind of front, there were a couple of references to potions, which is, again, another area of DCC that, you know, get, is getting explored somewhat in third-party creations like the Dark Trails, things like that. But the Master of Will, which is something that weakens all resistance to the hypnotic control um, it was what they used to enthrall all the semi-Bretons or the semi, you know, the servants that they had around the household. The green liquor that they took in sort of celebration of Alan joining them. That lit up all of their eyes. It lit eyes. up all their eyes. It was such a great description. And different colors. Yeah. It was yes. almost like it was their own alignments or something. And it had this effect on, yeah. on the protagonist of making him feel like he was a god and that morals didn't matter and that's how he could becomes sort of implicated in in this ritual i just love that idea of you know how do you play that during a role-playing yeah. session and what is that magic item the benefits versus the cost aspect of that and then you met you yeah. mentioned the the black mall they called it the the mal um if i'm pronouncing that right which is you know they called the beater of breast or the crusher of chests and i love that idea of the that uh-huh. <laughs> it was it was so evocative in the story drumming his way oh. through someone's oh my page. oh yeah uh, uh can we not it's, it's a very evil <laughs> mall made of yeah it's a very evil um weapon you know that you could sort of like the chaos weapons that you find in some of harley stroh's adventures and things like that right and he couldn't really keep a hold of it right right he, because- he, he was able to put it down it wasn't that he couldn't keep a hold of it he didn't like the feel of it and he was able to say no. It was it was so repugnant to him that even while under control, he was able to deny right. it. And Dahoot said, "Let him drop it. If he if he's not on board with this, it will do us no good anyway." Right. So if it's not willed by him in, when he's when he's wielding it, yeah. that's a neat neat effect they could have in there. I thought there were several sort of patrons. I agree that. Dahoot is one of those that I'd love to see written up. I think to me, her duality is actually kind of an interesting patron quality where at one time she's this, you know, druidic hounds on a black stallion, you're leading her hounds in a charge with the fiery eyes. And the other time she's embracing or trying to recover forgiveness from her lover. And I love that aspect of, well, how do you interact with a patron like that? That's showing these two sides, um, you know, coming from, from her, her long history. 
So I think that would be a, a fun write-up to do. Yeah. You know, the, the way they describe friendship reminded me somewhat of, I think there was an entry into last year's Gong Farmers, maybe about the drinking and tavern sort of scene and building upon the friendship and cohesiveness of the party. But though they made reference to, you know, some Greek myths where the it's an ideal of friendship between these comrades between Dick and between Bill and between Alan, that each of them are willing to die for each other. And I think you could use that as sort of a gaming element, you know, in terms of you know, maybe a write up into how do you make a party rely on each other to that extent and what benefits and what complications are a result of that. So I, th- I think that'd be kind of a fun way to treat the interrelationship with parties. And I think, like I said, I think it's in the Gong Farmers 2016. So there was a lot in here. And and I think it's, you know, so many things that you could take and make your table a horror-themed, investigative-themed uh, adventure. Uh, I liked it a lot. Well, and when you talk about the friendship, and it's really, it the bond is forged in Burn Witch Burn, but uh, Ricori and McCann... It's really neat to see the the friendship that gets forged in the first book and the way it carries through in the second. It's kind of the, that heroic ideal of, you're my friend, there's a threat, we will do whatever must be done. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and that takes us to our next segment, I think, which is props and audio suggestions. Oh, so what'd you think about that? <laughs> yeah, I think, but the first thing that came to my mind was lots of alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this, yeah, it's it's it was very appropriate to the time, and I think that you could make a really fun session just by having, you know, some great cocktails. There's a drink they refer to as Applejack, which I'd never heard of before, and, and it's a mixture of um, like a strong apple flavored alcoholic beverage for you know that. It'll, yeah, yeah. It, it seemed like it was. It would be kind of a fun thing to introduce to the table, but just really just loosen it up a part bit. Moonshine, yeah, maybe part moonshine. <laughs> The other thing that that kind of came to me um, was there's a great scene. It's it's sort of treated like a Shakespearean gravedigger scene where um, Alan is escaping from the Dahoot and he <laughs> he scales down the tower that that she lives in and ends up in this bachelor's card game. You know where the first question they have is, "Did you come up or did you come down?" You know, and it's and it's it's it, they're 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 interested in whether he came from one of their apartments. You know, and, uh, and and they have this very funny interaction where he has to play cards to win apparel. And I thought that that was a kind of a fun gimmick that you could you know introduce at a table where maybe it's not apparel, maybe it's equipment. You know, somehow your characters or your players are. Huh? robbed of uh, all their belongings maybe it's a lankmar setting where they've done the drinking you know to to see what effect it is and they God. And, they, yeah. and they come out of that with you know just their bare threads and and so you have them enter a card game where the chips are a dagger or a you know a shield or you know whatever it is you know that you want to give them and, and you make them play it out for real one bowstring one bowstring yeah <laughs> I think the Shakespearean comparison is very apt because it was like he was playing poker with like Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, and the Great <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, yeah. it, it, it seemed it was wonderful in the story, and yet the the men themselves seemed so out of place. <laughs> but it worked. It I was like, wait, where uh, he's he's escaping, and they're on this, and why are these guys here? I don't care. Right. 
It was the little bit of levity really, really needed for that situation, especially after what he was. Well, playing. and it also maybe it, 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 those guys, maybe. Uh, oh maybe yeah, they're the, yeah. The yeah. There we go. Maybe they're the patron saints of luck. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it almost seemed to ground him too. So it, it it didn't just serve a interruption to provide this comic tale, but it also seemed to ground him from what he had just experienced. So it had a storytelling basis as well, which I I, I enjoyed. So that was a that was a fun part of it. Oh yeah. It, it let him catch his breath and the humor primarily being in, okay, uh, we'll drink to that. Yep, <laughs> right. we'll drink to that too. Ah, oh, hell, bring him in. Let's all have yeah. a drink now. So for my list, uh, I have written down here brandy, lots and lots of brandy. Hmm. And thinking about that filament, that thread that was coming from the doctors, he was kind of in the shadow land, for lack of a better phrase. Mm -hmm. You could get some shiny webbing or filament to just denote the not fully dead yet status of the shadows. Yeah. Because that's pretty much what it demarcated. You don't have to tell the players that that's what it means. Mm, that'd be interesting, yeah. And you can certainly get, as trim, you can buy sulfur cordage at any fabric store. Yeah, yeah. Bob, how about you? Uh, well, prop-wise, especially around Halloween, you can buy all sorts of patterned votive lanterns. I was thinking of those or anything that casts kind of a strange shadow in a room that seems out of place. You know, play in a room that's kind of dim and just fill it with all sorts of things that are just throwing strange shadows that shouldn't be there. Oh, and that reminds me of something I forgot from the list. Those shadows don't have to be black or gray. In fact, they were denoted as being kind of a rose-pearl hue. Yeah, depending on almost like they were attributes of that individual that was the basis for the shadow. Yeah. Or if they were all kind of trapped within a certain tapestry, they would reflect the hues of that. Well, because they were so a faint shadow over the tapestry, they weren't solid black. They're shadows. You can see through a shadow. Right. So I like your idea of casting strange shadows that seem out of place because it doesn't matter what color that background is that they land on. Mm -hmm. I went kind of heavy on, on the audio portion for this. One of the things I... We, we like you to do that. <laughs> well, I mean, anybody that's watched any number of 1970s witchcraft horror movies, there's always kind of that overdubbed lots of people whispering things that you can't really make out that is just creepy as hell. That would be really good to throw in, you know, the whispering of the shadows. Music-wise, there's – I really like the movie. It's uh, – I think it's Sleepstalker, Revenge of the Sandman, and they have a, a lullaby, which is Sleep, Baby, Sleep. And in my brain, when she was doing the whole poem and she was speaking to his shadow about what he would feed when he said, and she's creep, shadow, creep. I was like, creep, shadow, uh, creep. No. I'm like, oh, I could <laughs> no, do that. no, no, no. <laughs> And then there's a lot of music from the period that you could use depending on, on what scene you're trying to set, like 42nd Street by Don Bester and his orchestra, Stars Fell on Alabama by Richard Himber and his orchestra, Continental by Leo Reisman, I Saw Stars by Freddie Martin, Stompin' at the Savoy by Chick Webb. Jeez. Midnight, the stars, and you, which is the song that was used for the closing scene in uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, oh, yeah. where it's the ballroom, and they go into the ballroom, and they're focusing in on the black and white picture, and Jack Nicholson was there as well. Yeah, that's, that's I, It's a great song, but you get that 
subconscious creepy vibe from it if you're familiar with that right i think it most most players would be or most people at the table because it's such a great scene and and even if it's just partially in the background you know what is what are we going to encounter now exactly and of course duke ellington great stuff but his e st louis toodaloo and black and tan fantasy are both Really creepy songs from the 30s. Cab Calloway's The Nightmare, The St. James Infirmary, or Minnie the Moocher all have kind of that weird vibe. You could use anything by Benny Goodman, Tommy Dorsey, Guy Lombardo, Bing Crosby, or anyone whose name is followed by and his orchestra. (laughs) (laughs) But also, if you want, because of the age we live in, you could use music that's more familiar, that's been given a period feel. Orchestra Obsolete did a 1930s version of Blue Monday, using things like singing saws, theremins, Hmm. and that's really neat. That's an interesting take. Okay. Postmodern jukebox, of course, their version of like Mad World, Who Can It Be Now, Nothing Else Matters, Ain't No Rest for the Wicked, and of course, uh, McCann's theme song, Gangsta's Paradise, <laughs> all done in like a 1930s God. jazz. Really, uh. really great music to uh, to set a set a tone yeah i mean the, the the whole era you know just drips from this this book and it would be great to have an accompanying soundtrack to go along with it nice that's really good that'll take us to our uh segment existing dcc inspirations and reskins and what i thought for this i mean there's there's a few that came to mind sort of right away daniel bishop's call of cthulhu themed creeping beauties of the woods the portsmouth mermaid is, is explicitly called the cthulhu themed um, Creeping Beauties has a lot of sort of the witches in the woods and the, the fey aspects. The Imperishable Sorceress, also by Daniel oh. Bishop, was another one that that came to mind just because of the. I hate that woman. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, I could so see Ivrian in that. Yeah, and, yeah, and um, complete with the ones by the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Harley Stroh has one in, I think, the first and second printing, The Infernal Crucible of Cesar Khan the Mad. First through third. And, and so that that made me think of uh, of his work as well. Um, his, he's got one oh, called yeah. Abbot of the Woods, I think, in the fourth one, um, yeah. which is a is another one that came to mind just because of its uh, ritualistic aspect. I think there's like five different locations the players have to go through uh, in order to, uh, you know, to stop this mad abbot. So those, those are all the ones that kind of came to mind in addition to the ones that we, we kind of previously mentioned in the podcast. What about you, Bob? Well, uh, right off the bat, there's uh, a lot of talk about running reverse sailors, reversing sailors on the Starless Sea and, and being the monsters. In some Thanks, ways, Doug. <laughs> in some ways, it might be fun to ru- run a uh, reverse Kansas, a reverse. We're not in oh, Kansas anymore. Take the fantasy characters <laughs> and put them in the bodies of modern men, because that that sort of happens mm-hmm. from time to time through this story. Where he has the flashback to he who was as opposed to he who is. And uh, that might be kind of fun. And it actually it harkens back to a uh, module from Mayfair games when they adapted the movie, the keep in the 1980s, they did this sort of time traveling your characters, your characters, your characters all the way up through the forties. And it would be, I think, kind of fun to do something DCC-wise with something like that. Um, you could do Tower Out of Time. You could add a segment where players are flashing to the past, trying to stop the tower from from having left to begin with, mm-hmm. and then flash back oh. and forth between that and their current PCs struggling against the main storyline. That's a cool idea. And then 
you're really good with those those segments of uh what do you call it? interludes? Well, but you could you where could, we play the opposite side. But you could you could do it even in a session. You could stop action, move to the other set of characters, because if you structure it properly, you can be altering the module that the the current characters are in based on what they're doing. You just need to time your segments right and uh, and take some notes. Ooh. So that would also oh that would be a feat. Yes, and it would allow people that have played i mean i've played tower of time a couple times and so i sort of know what would be expected but now all of a sudden i've got a character in the past i have no idea what that is and then because of that now we go into this room that i expect one thing there and it's wholly different because the past had changed it so it keeps players on their toes um and it's such a good module that being able to run it that way i think would be fun with a touch of retheming the idea of ancient stone circles being recreated by an unwitting populace. That's something that I've done with like my, uh, my mountain monsters campaign. I've dealt with standing stones out in the, mm, the top mountains in Appalachia. Yeah, I remember that. And I, it would be very at home in the shutter mountains with a little bit of reskinning instead of just, you know, old Britons and, uh, paupers. It'd be the shed folk that are being sacrificed mm-hmm. and gives you a reason to drive forward. Pressed like grapes. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, to the dregs. Um, reincarnation is a big, big theme in this. It's like everybody's a reincarnation of somebody else in this. And you could tie that into any adventure. You could pick a character with, like, the highest luck or someone in the middle, someone who never gets any attention, you know, the person that doesn't have the highest or the lowest luck. And in a past life, they were linked to, oh, the Emerald Enchanter or to the Imperishable Sorceress. And so periodically just give them snippets of memory from their past as things are building through the adventure. They're, they're in, they haven't encountered the Emerald Enchanter, but they have that flash of, of sitting in a parlor with this wizard long, long ago and give them little bits like that and really kind of crank up that tension. As as you're going, they they get those feelings, everything. It just I think uh, would be a, a really fun way to go. Oh yeah, we're we're gonna tie back to that in a couple of minutes, I think. <laughs> um. <laughs> so, Jen, uh, what do you have? I tried very hard in in this segment to ignore the blatant Lovecraftian references where oh. possible, <laughs> which which means That's that Mark one? pretty much Mark pretty much covered it with Daniel J. Bishop. <laughs> pretty much all of it there uh no there was a moment let me rephrase that there were a few moments in the book wherein a monstrous frog the black god of the siths they never actually named it and it's probably because nobody else could pronounce babugbabils <laughs> <laughs> you and like jeff goad <laughs> uh, yeah right <laughs> um one of the things that really struck me in this is that with the lack of holy people in the story, this could easily translate to Lankmar with the black magic going on and the summoning. Because you you don't have a character in this story that is trying to dispel evil. They're just trying to go with it and survive. And that really struck me as dark and gritty. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah. Um Neon nights, you are suddenly, mm. you suddenly find yourself looking at a completely different landscape from the top of 
a building, no less. One of my favorite scenes involved the dimensional sailors, or what could have been, complete with the fog that just surrounded them and was actually keeping pace with them. You've got Beyond the Black Gate, Mm -hmm. heavy Celtic mythology and lore. You've got the Hounds of the Great Hunt in there, and witches. Mm -hmm. That would be a nice, tidy mixing of the two stories here. Attack of the Frogs and The Haunting of Larvik Island. Stephen Newton has some really good threads of deep mythology through there that are actually a little connected if you read closely. And there's a lot of mention of the old gods, just as in these expositions from the villain. The 13th Skull... And they served Brandolin Red. In both of these, you get, well, shadows of some sort attacking you. But in both of them, you also have a really heavy focus on that ancestral history throughout the whole story. And there is a gratuitous wine press mentioned during a sacrifice. So, <laughs> so Brand- Brandolin's a shoe in Oh, yeah. The Emerald Enchanter, as you mentioned, the setting of that... The stonework on the cliffside and everything being guarded by the automaton servants. And that really just, I, I was reading this book and scrawling down all of these module names that I, I know this, I've run this, I've played this. Wait, I, wait, there's this. Yes, this one too. Uh, like the one who watches from below. Okay, it might be kind of obvious. There, there's a Lovecraftian theme tying it in. I'm, I know, but you also have this labyrinthine manse that it's set in, and the creatures that are, are those dogs? Oh God, no, those are not dogs, as was told by the guy in the small village that ended up going crazy after being attacked by Dahoot's hounds. Okay, I lied. Uh, Daniel, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of love on my list here. Uh, the Arwitch Grinder and People of the Pit, I thought were very, very close to the story. Both of them, besides being a bit of labyrinthine, you also have the chanting from below, the sacrifices, and the cultists with those malleable appearances. And I was actually kind of surprised that I found myself getting tied back to People of the Pit a little more strongly than when we did that episode last year on Abraham Merritt's People of the Pit. I I thought it was almost a better fit to this book itself. Does that make any sense at all? (laughs) And the last one I have here on my list is Prayers of the Forgotten, which is not actually a module or an adventure in and of itself. It has the seeds for three forgotten gods and a couple of sample encounters. And the very last one in there, there's a sacrificial circle with the the standing stones and the end scene, the visual that you get with the giant hammer just drove that one home for me. Hmm. And you could probably take the last quarter of this book, and if you've ever taken a look at Prayers of the Forgotten, the little uh, zine-sized source book from 
Carl Bustler, and Eric Hoffman. Yeah, you, you'll understand what I'm talking about on that one. Very cool. I like all those references, yeah. Well, that brings us to our DCC feature for the show. And I think um, you alluded to this to us earlier, Jen, but it is Bride of the Black Mans by Harley Stroh. And that is DCC number 82, published by Goodman Games. Centuries past, Lady Ilse ascended to the scion of House Lees by trading the archdevil Mammon what he wanted most, her mortal soul, and a diabolical betrothal. The triumph proved hollow, for every year on the eve of her fell covenant, she was beset by visions of Mammon and her foul promise. Seeking to save herself, she was buried alive, swallowed in the holy symbols of a dozen divergent faiths. This desperate ploy held Mammon at bay for centuries, but a devil can afford to wait a very long time. After hundreds of years, the last of the holy wards has fallen. The devil has come to collect his due. Tonight, a storm crashes against the ancient manor house and forgotten spears rise from the muck and mire. The fallen belfry tolls once more, announcing the hellish fete. As the adventurers arrive to explore the Black Mance, Mammon calls for his winsome bride. He will leave with a soul at the end of the night. The only question is, whose? Yeah. I love a good uh, timeline, timetable in an adventure. <laughs> and uh, it, well, As a judge, it gives me a great tool for, uh, again, helping keep that tension up during the adventure and moving things along. And so I, right off the bat, Bride of the Black Mance is, is always going to play different just because of that. You get mm-hmm. to just say, okay, players, you got four hours, go. <laughs> what do you mean? And it's nope. a murder mystery. I don't care how much table talk you got. You have four real hours, go. There are actually a couple of points within this adventure where Harley advises the judge to tell the players to cease all table talk. You're on the clock. Go. What are you doing? So, so there's that, and again, this this has this the entire feel. It it ties so nicely to the story because you've got the scion of of House Lys as opposed to this this ancient shadow queen of Is, and this long lost manor house, and and Mammon as opposed to the thing that that lurks in the stones waiting with the shadows. It would be so easy to lay Creep Shadow atop Bride of the Black Mance, I think. Yeah, and it's it's got the the love and the fact that this is a a, a story about a betrayal and betrothal. And it ties in very well echoing, you know, what's in Creep Shadow from the something we really didn't get into, which is, you know, it's really kind of a love story of two different types of love in a sense. And that's what I really liked about the Harley's implementation in Black Mance, besides the fact that it it's so tightly run, you know, you have to be a, a really on top of your game to run this as a judge and players. I've never experienced it in that that convention setting, but I'm seeing lots of it advertised, you know, for convention games. I, I just imagine it'd be a blast, you know, when everybody's on point and everybody's eager to um, to make sure they they hit those marks and and really go forward. So. Well, and as Bob said, you, it's not going to play out the same way exactly, twice. Yeah. It is a large adventure for what it is. I, I would be very surprised if a group was able to hit every single thing within that four-hour time span. And the the really big kicker for this one is that as the night progresses, perceptions of the environment and inhabitants shift 
because the clock chimes on every single hour and counts down to the doom. Well, and perceptions shifting and changing at the end of Creep Shadow when he has the witch sight and and the mobster is asking him, you know, this is what I see. What do you see? Well, I see this giant goddess-like figure in waves. I see this woman in the distance who looks to be faintly lit. Mm-hmm. And come on, when the tattered shadows were rising from beneath the, the standing stones, for, mm-hmm. forgotten spirits rising from the muck and mire, that's I mean, yeah. that's it. That's, that, that's right there. I mean, it's just... Oh. Ultimately, the goal is to prevent the world from being taken over. Yeah. As in all horror books, right? Uh, but... It could be at the possible cost of a character here. However, unlike Dick Ralston, you'll have a good idea of the cost when the deal is laid out. He kind of didn't know till it was too late. Wasn't Dick Ralston the one that kind of came back as a fly at one point? Uh, like Yeah, like a blue bottle fly, I think is how it was. Like a blue bottle fly, and he was buzzing, and the buzzing, and then he turned back to the shadow. And, and he was still helping, though, because it was probably him and the other shadows that had placed the sacrificial bowl, and... Also tying into the book, one of the possible premises of the mod is that the PCs are eternal warriors, or the reincarnated spirits of the original occupants, mm. which throws back to that ancestral memory. Yes, yes it and does. And you could relive the circumstances of some of the former residents' deaths, or find items that once belonged to them that could play a big key in assisting you at the end if you don't get lost in this place. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that that really does. That whole Jungian theories all tie in right there. Yeah, it's it it's a really neat adventure, and I'm I'm glad it it it's one of those that I always see at conventions, and it's just it's neat that it fits so well. Um, uh, you know, for players and for judges to run. And I really, I think it, it matches this, this story pairs it really well in a way that I, you know, after reading it, I was, I was really focused on those Call of Cthulhu elements and really trying to find, you know, what is it, you know, we could tie this to that, you know, because there's so much of that, that sense to it. But, you know, even though Harley didn't call this out as an explicit reference or inspiration, it beat for beat, you know, there's so much that's similar about it. Uh, it, it feels just right, you know, like a good fit for it. It's a good old-fashioned Appendix N module. And uh, just real quick to go over something that doesn't get a lot of press. The inspirations for this module are listed as Fritz Leiber's The Howling Tower, Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher, Mm. and you'll enjoy this, Bob, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. (laughs) Well, there we go. So you have to use You have to use it. And, you know... Really, where else have you found hands of glory as artifacts? Oh, yes. <laughs> and I'll just leave it there. <laughs> well, it's that it's a good module, and I'm glad to see that Harley gets another feature for uh, for his work. Well done. Well, when you're one of the most prolific. <laughs> <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And yeah. it recently got a new publication treatment with a cover by Stefan Pogue mm. this time. Is that correct? Is that uh, with a little yes. bit more material? Uh, yes. And it's, um, oh, I'm going to kick myself because I don't remember the name of the adventure. But instead of Blood for the Serpent King by Edgar Johnson, which is in the first printing here, the new bonus one is Floating Oasis of the Ascended God from Stephen Newton. Ooh. I love the title. Yeah, I need to go and read that. Right? 
That's awesome. Should be very cool. Well, I think that'll take us to our last segment, which is road crew and convention shoutouts. We are the keepers of mysteries. So who are the guardians of secrets? You can be. Our community events page has gone live and events are starting to filter in. Send us your upcoming events for inclusion, and once you've submitted a few successfully run events, you will be inducted to the roles of the Guardians of Secrets, able to enter your events directly into the calendar. Members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables, such as this year's free RPG Day companion, and other secret benefits. And... In case you haven't noticed, we do have a new contributor to the companion zine, this issue and last. Arimati Pepo, look for his fascinating take on whispering shadows in this month's issue. And last month's issue, he did a barbarian class for us. Awesome contributions from Finland. Yay! M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Join the Appendix N Book Club of New York at Mia's Bakery on October 14th for the discussion of Robert E. Howard's Conan of Samaria, October 28th for Fritz Lieber's Swords Against Death, and November 4th for their discussion of Abraham Merritt's Burn Witch Burn. Hmm, that sounds familiar. <laughs> we, that sounds like it could be a cool author. Yeah. <laughs> also find Judge Jeff Goad for more info or simply be at Mia's Bakery at noon on the October dates and 1 p.m. November 4th and tune into Jeff's new project, the Non-Gaming Appendix in Book Club Podcast. And Tyler Hudak will be running Sailors on the Starless Sea as part of VirtuaCon on October 8th, beginning at 10 a.m. Eastern. Jeff Bernstein continues running DCC RPG at Games Plus in Mount Prospect, Illinois, my old home shop. Check with the store for more details. Friend of the show and guardian of secrets, Troy Tucker ran some amazing games at Gen Con, including his famed Egyptian-themed DCC. He currently continues to run DCC at the Magician's Forge in Northport, Florida on alternating Saturdays. Check with the store or find Troy Tucker on G Plus or Facebook for more information. Timothy Drennan is running a bi-weekly open table Thursday night DCC game at Geek Out in Burleston, Texas. Of course, they just finished up a few hours before we released this episode, so the next game will be held on October 19th. Drinking in Dragon 7 takes place from 5 p.m. till midnight on October 21st in New London, Connecticut. The charity for Drinking Dragon 7 is Guardians of the Purple Heart. Both Brendan LaSalle and Spellburn's Judge Jeff Goad will be in attendance running tables of DCC RPG. And Joey Royale rocks for coordinating all of that. Oh, sounds like a really fun convention if you're in the area. Well, want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine? We would love to see what sorts of things you have created based on your Appendix N reading. Remember... We have plenty of things in our prize closet to give away in return for contributions, zines, modules, and even some great Appendix N. Are you running Road Crew Games? Drop us a line to let us know. You can submit your events or creations to us at the hub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites. Even better, join the Guardians of Secrets. Keep an eye out for our future topics, and we can include your material in the show companion. In the meantime, if you are enjoying the show... Drop us an email, comment on the podcast, help us by posting a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find us. Be sure and visit us on Google+. We hope we've inspired you. 
Thanks for listening. Good night. Have a great night, guys. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us again next time when the Sanctum Secorum opens to study Sign of the Labrus by Margaret St. Clair. The Sanctum Secorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2017.